This is Ben Weingarten for Encounter Books, and today I'm joined by Dr. Victoria Coates, author of the new book, David's Sling, A History of Democracy in Ten Works of Art. Dr. Coates is a cultural historian who received her PhD from the University of Pennsylvania, specializing in Italian Renaissance studies. She regularly contributes to conferences and symposia in the United States and Europe, and her work has appeared in the 16th Century Journal, Gazette de Beaux-Arts, and Renaissance Studies. Dr. Coates is a former consulting curator of the Cleveland Museum of Art as well. In addition to her academic and intellectual pursuits, Dr. Coates has served under Donald Rumsfeld, Texas Governor Rick Perry, and today is a leading foreign policy advisor for Republican presidential candidate Senator Ted Cruz. So it's fitting that a Renaissance woman would write a book such as David Sling. Dr. Coates, thank you so much for joining us. Ben, thank you for having me. Dr. Coates, what possessed you to write this book about the relationship between art and democracy over more than two millennia over time? Why this book at this time? Well, I would say some of writing David's Sling had to do with explaining myself and coming up with a rationale for why an art historian has a significant perspective on contemporary foreign policy and national security challenges. And what I've always believed is art history is simply a specialized kind of history, that you, you are using objects the way other disciplines use texts to understand the past, and that if we really want to spread freedom today, if we want to do it in a responsible, enduring way, we really need to understand what the history of freedom is. And that's not just the United States. While the United States is an apex of the story and a, key, a kingpin of the story, it isn't the whole story. So that's why I wanted to write this book. And sometimes, of course, art is the most compelling reflection of life and culture. And and your book sort of follows the trajectory from our Greco-Roman and Judeo-Christian beginnings through, as you mentioned, America as the apex. Now, you were telling me before we started speaking that printing such a book or publishing such a book as this on art history is a challenge uh, in today's book world. So speak a little bit to that. Well, the, the great news is it's actually much easier now than it was 20 years ago. Um, 20 years ago, a book like David's Sling with 175 color illustrations scattered throughout would have cost thousands of dollars uh, for each copy sold just because the process would have been so laborious. But starting about 10 years ago with the digitization of the publishing business, we've been able to lay out books this way at a really reasonable cost. And what's interesting to me is 20 years ago, when this was so prohibitively expensive, most of the presses that were producing art history went out of business. Um, and so we've had a real dearth of this kind of book. There really haven't been any because because of the expense and then because nobody was brave enough to actually take up one of these projects now that we have the technology. And the extraordinary thing about Encounter is that they were willing to take the leap. And I think we have a really beautiful product at a, at a very accessible price. Uh, and I'm excited for what that means for publishing the discipline more broadly. Yes, and it's an aesthetically pleasing product as well as an intellectually stimulating one. And, and let's start right from the title of the book, David Sling. David Sling has a double meaning. Explain that to our listeners. Well, I think most people are, are familiar with the story from the book of Samuel of David, the, the shepherd, who would go on to be the, the great king, 
of Israel and the founder of the house uh, that produced Jesus Christ. But at the beginning, he was just a simple shepherd. And the Israelites were, were bat- battling the Philistines, and the Philistines had a great giant named Goliath who came out and taunted the Israelites and asked them to join in single combat. And they didn't have anyone brave enough to do it, so David came along and said he would. And because he was so pure in his faith in God, and also so ingenious and skillful with his slingshot, he was able to defeat the giant. Um, And so as I was looking at this project, which originally started uh, just focusing on Michelangelo's David, it seemed to me the slingshot uh, by which David was able to kill Goliath was really the metaphor for democracy. Yeah, and America, of course, as sort of an underdog nation. And and when you think about technology and art and advancement as well, the entrepreneur is the seminal sort of underdog figure. So there really are, there really are a number of primary, secondary, and, and tertiary meanings that one can interpret from the title of your book as personified in David and his sling. Now, looking at sort of the opposite side of the coin, uh, one work that you reference, a, a piece of architecture that you reference and you have a chapter about is the Parthenon. I visited the Parthenon a couple of years ago and was struck by the fact that here was a symbol of democracy by the classical definition of democracy uh, as the height of civilization. And yet today it's surrounded by what is basically a decaying country. And, and that sort of, sort of shows the, the rise and fall and that democracy isn't something that's guaranteed. It needs to be protected. Speak a little bit to the significance of the Parthenon. Oh, absolutely. And the only problem then is you're about 2,300 years late. Um, because the Athenian experiment in democracy was dramatic, it was original, it was the first one, and it failed in about 150 years. So one of the great lessons of David's sling is that freedom is not inevitable. And certainly going back to what you were just saying about the United States not being an unlikely hero, all of these states are. I mean, Athens is a rock. Rome is a swamp. Venice shouldn't exist at all. You know, Holland is underwater. Florence is flat. It's a market town. These are not places that you would assume are going to flourish. But because of the remarkable effects of democracy, and particularly democracy when married to free market principles, which is really central to the Florence, Venice, and Holland chapters, you have this remarkable both economic and creative flowering that allows for the creation of the works of art that each of these chapters study. So I think it's it's certainly not an exclusive an arrangement between freedom and creative genius, but we, we have a wonderful pattern of these over time, uh, which when we trace them, I think gives us a new appreciation for what Western civilization has accomplished. And there's also an element of uh, creative destruction in terms of political systems when you think about the fact that our founders saw the failures of all these systems, including the dangers of democracy qua democracy, pure democracy, and chose a Republican form. And so you see that we sort of build on the vestiges of these past civilizations. Now, you obviously highlight nine other pieces of architecture or art uh, as well in your book. What are one or two of the uh, pieces or locations that you'd like to highlight for our listeners? Well, it's a little hard because each one of them was was a wonderful learning experience for me, even ones that I had taught and studied for many years because this line of inquiry, the notion that 
democracy would inspire great art is not very fashionable in the academy right now. <laughs> so none of these works have really been looked at in this context. And uh, one of the ones that might be very surprising to your listeners is St. Mark's in Venice, which most people think of as the Cathedral of Venice. It's, it's nothing of the sort. It's the palace of the duly elected leader, or it's the palace chapel, rather, of the duly elected leader of Venice, the Doge. And it was built as a kind of a treasure box to be the, the manifestation of the wealth that was generated by the remarkable advances in shipping and bookkeeping that were achieved by the Venetian Republic. And then on top of that, they added in wonderful antiquities like the beautiful bronze horses that are over the door to the church, which were brought back on the Fourth Crusade from Constantinople and became the symbol of, uh, of Venice as the inheritor of the mantle of antiquity in the Middle Ages. And so you have this very physical reminder that Venice was now the new Rome, the new Athens, and was going to, to take that role going forward. An equally un, unexpected one uh, is Monet's Water Lilies from the 1920s. Most people don't think of Monet as a 20th century artist, uh, and certainly not as a particularly political one. But the fact of the matter is the Nymphaeus cycle that's installed in the Orangerie was done very deliberately to celebrate the victory of World War I, and it was a very personal communication between Monet and Georges Clemenceau to, as I said, celebrate the preservation of the Third Republic, and Monet was a very passionate French patriot. So I think there'll be some unexpected stories in there. One of the tensions that I noticed, and sort of when you think about culture more broadly, uh, it's sort of always looming in the background, is the fact that these works of art throughout history have been financed because wealth was created and there was an ability for folks to indulge in the arts and sort of spend into the splendor of these various civilizations. Yet so frequently when you look at the intelligentsia in general and artists in particular, they have such a leftist worldview. So how do you sort mm -hmm. of how do you sort of tie that to the idea that freedom and prosperity and art go hand in hand, yet the artists who themselves are pure entrepreneurs in reality typically have a worldview so anathema to the system in which they live and create. Well, I actually blame Michelangelo for all of this. Um, it, it's really his fault, and I don't think he did it on purpose, but he really pioneered the notion of the artist as the independent creator. And it's in many ways ironic because Michelangelo at the same time was a committed patriot. He was a d just devout proponent of the Florentine Republic. And I don't think he would have, have done what he did with the intent of divorcing artists from participation in free systems uh, in a way that we would consider to be salutary. But... Uh, that's sort of been the effect. And what's maybe mo the most interesting case study is Picasso because he's the, he's the last chapter, he's the 10th chapter, and uh, he painted the Great Granica in the late 1930s to protest against the, the dramatic Nazi and Franco combined bombing of the Basque town, uh, the terrible slaughter of civilians, which was sort of a test run for the Luftwaffe. But because of advances in communications, rather than just sort of being buried 
the event was telegraphed around the world within hours with pictures. So everybody saw the slaughter and the destruction. And Picasso, who was in Paris at the time and had been commissioned by the exiled Republic of Spain to do a, a major mural for their World Fair pavilion, and had been struggling with it, said, I have my subject. He said, I'm not generally a political artist, but I want to do this. And he paints the great protest picture, this massive black and white fractured image of destruction. And what's so ironic in Picasso's case is he could see the existential threat of the Nazis. He understood they weren't just trying to take over one state, they were trying to extinguish liberty. But he couldn't see it with the Soviets. He couldn't see it with communism, or he wouldn't see it. Um, and so while on the one hand he was able to embody the resistance to one existential threat of the 20th century, on the other he, he couldn't see the other. Applying your thesis about democracy and sort of and liberty more broadly going hand in hand with artistic creation and, and flourishing, if you were to look at that thesis in today's society, which in the West is increasingly, and hopefully the pendulum swings the other way on this, but is increasingly an illiberal, liberal bastion. Do you suspect that artistic creation will decline proportionate with the growth of this sort of progressive, squelching creative and artistic freedom kind of mindset? I think it will probably move to an unexpected place. And one of the most interesting examples from the last maybe 15 years, is Ai Weiwei's bird's nest from the 2006 Olympiad in in Beijing. Because this was supposed to be an expression of China's embrace of the Greek tradition. I mean, the Olympics originating in ancient Greece, sort of a a symbol of democracy. And Ai Weiwei, you know, a great artist and designer, is going to put up up this, this stadium that will imitate the monuments of ancient Greece But after the Olympiad, he came out and said, look, he said, this thing is a false smile. It's not real. These people are not uh, liberalizing in any way. And he's a very controversial figure, but I think the way he understood, both the way he had been exploited and what the PRC was all about, shows you that these forces are still at work. So it would be hard for me to predict precisely when it would would appear again, but it does seem to me that given the spread of democracy and the fact that we now, when 70 years ago, Israel didn't exist and Japan was a deadly enemy, we now have two terrific, vibrant democratic allies there for the United States that we might look to either or both of them for places where the values that have produced these previous masterworks might resurface. So that that provides a a good uh, segue into some questions that I'd like to ask uh, on your foreign policy views and those of the senator, Mm -hmm. given that we are in the middle of a presidential election and uh, your boss is the number (laughs) two person in the Republican field today. So so with that, who are... Yeah, yeah. Who are some of the individuals or what are some of the works that have had the greatest influence on your worldview as it relates to foreign policy policy and national security and by extension the worldview of Senator Cruz? Well, certainly, I mean, in terms of David Sling, it's it's in many ways a cautionary tale about how one chooses to understand the development of democracy 
and how it can be spread. I mean, because certainly this tells us it is a trial and error process. It takes a long time, and it, ha- it, it can't be taken for granted. So certainly that's how it has informed my worldview. Uh, for Senator Cruz, I know he looks very much for models of success, which sounds very simple, but it's amazing to me how many people will look at failed models and sort of try, try again um, using tactics that have not been particularly successful. So he looks at a president, president like Ronald Reagan, which is very popular to do, but it's very hard to actually imitate the Reagan mo- uh, model because you have to make a number of very difficult choices. You have to set your priorities clearly, and you have to just stay focused on them like a laser. And so as he looks at our challenges today, he would see Reagan's and Kirkpatrick's and Fred Ickley's interaction with the Soviet Union as, as a great model, that you, you don't pretend that you can domesticate them, you don't pretend that they're suddenly going to become your friend, but rather that they're, they're a terrible threat that has to be fought every time they poke their heads up. And that mean, does not mean necessarily invading uh, but it does mean being extremely mindful of America's interests. Do, do you view Islamic supremacism as the analog, although obviously differing in some ways, to the ideology and more broadly the forces of the Soviet Union? Certainly in terms of being an existential threat. It was interesting over Christmas, uh, the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei came out with a little notice statement about how he felt Iran was locked in a civilizational struggle with the West. Now, you know, I'm not in the business of destroying anybody else's civilization, but I am in the business of protecting my own. And when somebody says they're out to destroy it, I think we should probably pay some attention. And so, you know, it's, it's not, as you said, directly analogous to Soviet totalitarianism, but it could only be a matter of time. And so I think we need to sort of organize the way we think about this in terms of protecting and celebrating both our culture, our allies, um, because I mean, I think we are a tremendously uh, powerful force for good around the world. And so that's, that's something I'd, I'd like to perpetuate. Uh, but I'm sure we've got nothing to worry about because anything Khamenei says is for domestic consumption anyway. It's oh, just yes, politics. for the hardliners. For the hardliners. <laughs> right. So, so just to speak a, in a little bit broader terms about mm-hmm. your far, foreign policy views and by extension uh, their influence on the senator, my understanding of Senator Cruz's foreign policy, and I assume yours, is is this. The first thing would be what determines whether to intervene militarily otherwise or not at all is what is in America's compelling national interest. Number two, when we intervene militarily, we have a clear objective and an exit strategy. We destroy our enemy and then we leave. And number three is that nation building in places that are inhospitable to Western liberalism is a fool's errand. How would you describe the Cruz doctrine? Well, I... I, I Resist doctrines because I think I think doctrines. When you say, "Okay, I, you know, this is the way I'm going to approach every problem," can sometimes lead to to maybe not sloppy thinking, but maybe not not the most creative thinking. So I, I tend to think more in terms of principles, and that may just be semantics. But uh, certainly, 
for military force, you know, there's a reason the biggest country Reagan ever invaded was Granada. Um, you know, he didn't, he didn't have to send hundreds of thousands of troops into Czechoslovakia. Now, that said, he did have to make a significant, expensive, well-thought-out, creative investment in our military. And I think that's something a lot of uh, people who like to say peace through strength, I'm a Reagan-esque, are not willing to engage in in a really serious way. So, you know, that, that would be one element in it. I think absolutely, as you said, if you are going to engage in a military action, you, you need a plan I think you also have to be very clear-eyed that very few plans uh, survive contact with the enemy, and so you need you need to be clear with people that you know you've 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 done your due diligence. This is what you want to have happen, but that war is a is a nasty, messy business, and when we get involved with it, we as a nation have to be prepared for you know for it, it to take unexpected turns. But then finally, to give you know, the people who are executing the mission, everything they need, you know, to, to finally bring it to victory. And that can be a process over time. So I don't know that that's a doctrine, but it would be, it would be a set of sort of guidelines for how we would approach this. Mm -hmm. and, and Senator Cruz gave a big foreign policy address uh, at Heritage fairly recently, uh, where he echoed a lot of what was outlined by Gene Kirkpatrick. And I think he referenced Jean Kirkpatrick and uh, her famous essay, Dictatorships and Double Standards. And, and many of your sort of opponents on foreign policy from the quote-unquote right uh, <laughs> will say that they are truly those following in the footsteps of the Kirkpatrick mantle. I imagine you would argue that Senator Cruz actually is the true upholder of the Kirkpatrickian mantle. How would you respond to them? Well, I mean... Yeah, I, I don't know who can channel Gene Kirkpatrick best. Uh, it is interesting to me that many establishment institutions in foreign policy, just as they have in every other branch of policy, have been deeply disturbed by Senator Cruz and the kinds of uh, approaches that he proposes because he has very little time for, quote-unquote, conventional wisdom. Um, and you have a lot of people whose sort of bread and butter depends on their position on editorial boards, their positions in think tanks, how their appearances on television, and all of that is based on a certain way of thinking that they've been perpetuating for 20 years. Now, the problem with all of that, as cozy and prosperous as it may be, is it hasn't worked. We're not in a good place. And I don't think either the left or the right has creatively approached the challenges of the 21st century in a way that will allow us to win this struggle. Because that's, that's what I want to do. I don't, I don't want to mess around with it. I don't want to nibble around the edges. I don't want to uh, placate it. I, I want to win. And we're not in that position right now. So as uncomfortable as it may be for these uh, these intellectual bastions, to have their wisdom challenged. And I'm sorry that if that makes them unhappy, uh, I think we have to do it because, as we've been discussing, there's a lot on the line here. Yeah, do, do you think that the, the notion, and I'll jump from the abstract to the more concrete uh, in short order, but do you think that the notion of 
you are a hawk and an interventionist versus uh, an isolationist. Do you think that that whole paradigm is in and of itself flawed and kind of silly, given that every situation needs to be assessed based upon the pros and cons, the costs and benefits? Oh, absolutely. And we're dealing in a whole bunch of very tired terms that people use in whatever way serves their purposes. You know, what is a neocon? What is an isolationist? What is a hawk? What's a dove? Maybe I'm an owl. Um, it, it's, it's right now, it's, you know, again, it's a battle of terms. It's not a battle of ideas. And I think Senator Cruz is much more interested in, is in engaging in ideas rather than what an individual word might mean. So if we were to look to where, say, the Middle East was during a Ronald Reagan presidency, maybe the best detente that ever existed was when you had Sunni and Shia basically counterbalancing each other. T- tell me if you disagree, but under this administration, it would seem that the Shia side of that battle is ascendant, although the Islamic supremacist forces, both Sunni and Shia, are rising and metastasizing throughout the region. If, if Senator Cruz were to be elected president, what would winning look like from America's perspective in the Middle East? Winning in the Middle East would look like taking decisive action against hostile forces and decisively supportive action against friendly forces. And I know that sounds simplistic, but this administration has been so confused about how it has approached the different entities that we're either trying to ally with or combat that at this point, I think no one has any clear idea of what what America stands for or what America wants. So, you know, Reagan had some pretty interesting ideas about this. He he wrote a really interesting Washington Post uh, op-ed about Israel in 1960. It's either 78 or 79, I'm going to get it wrong, Um, talking about Israel as an asset to the United States. And it was really a unique way of thinking at the time that you had this, you know, I mean, at that point, more developing democracy uh, that was very pro-Western, had no interest in the Soviets and could help us offset uh, some, some rather dramatic Soviet gains. And I think we can update that. Now we have a flourishing, vibrant democracy that is closely allied to us. And so as I look at the region, rather than trying, you know, starting by trying to solve the Shiite-Sunni divide, which is is a heavy road, um, I might look at, okay, what what do I have that's positive? And maybe I could look into, you know, reinforcing, enhancing, expanding my relationship with a country like Israel. And we unfortunately don't have 50 Israels, but we do have Jordan, we have Egypt, you know, we have the UAE. We have some really pretty good actors that have expressed great interest in working with us. So I think the, the starting premise would be to both reach out to those nations and then to try to knit them together into something that could become a much more aspirational, uh, successful model for the region than the series of failed and dictatorial states that we have right now. Certainly, um, I've I've written a couple of times that I think the greatest outcome in the Middle East uh, under the Obama presidency has been Sisi coming to power in Egypt, uh, which of course was not the outcome that President Obama sought. (laughs) Uh, If you were to look at, for example, Saudi Arabia, clearly now they're becoming a focus given that 
they are in effect sort of in a cold war with Iran, one could say. Uh, Saudi Arabia, of course, has funded Wahhabi jihadist movements and um, placated the Muslim Brotherhood forces in that country for decades. Yet at the same time, they've been viewed by America uh, typically as somewhat of an ally. What do you say where you have this ambiguous situation where perhaps of the evils, the Sunni dictatorship is better than the alternative, but at the same time, the Sunni dictatorship is also funding your enemies. How, how do you analyze that sort of nation? Oh, that's not even close for me. If you're looking at Iran, if you're looking at a country that has actively killed hundreds of U.S. service people, spends their time chanting death to America, you know, imprisons our citizens, that, you know, vows to wipe Israel off the map, those are the bad guys. Uh, the Saudis, yes, can be a challenging alliance, but they have been allies. And I think before we toss them under the bus, uh, and you know, I am, I am not ignorant of the circumstances of that society, but still, you know, if, if I don't see another terrific option presenting itself on the peninsula. I mean, you basically have Yemen as a failed state. You have Oman which is considerably more desirable, UAE, which is terrific. Uh, but I don't, I don't see us replacing Saudi Arabia with a Jeffersonian democracy tomorrow. And absent that some kind of option, I think it's very clear to us which side we should be on in that conflict. Um, and that's without any illusions about what we're aligned with. Sure, and another one of these silver linings is the fact that I think under President Obama... The Sunnis and other forces in the region uh, realize that America will not protect them against Iran under this president. So sort of like with the Japanese in Asia, knowing that China is allowed to be more assertive because the West isn't going to do anything about it, you do sort of, I guess, have a perverse silver lining to the Obama presidency. You also have the genie out of the bottle in the form of ISIS, because ISIS is coming after Riyadh. I mean, it's not like they like the Saudis. I mean, that's I mean, one of the great concerns is, is those guys are going to be unleashed. Um, so I think there is some recognition of, of the problem this has created. And I would also like to get back to what you were saying about President Al-Sisi uh, and the, the, the great opportunity this represents in Egypt and the utter squandering it that we've seen, of it that we've seen over the last two years of an administration that is still apparently pining from Morsi and Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, it's, it's extraordinary to me that, that they behave in the way that they do. But, uh, you know, again, here you have someone who is certainly westward leading. I mean, it might be very close to Sadat in, uh, in, 70, in 72. Mm-hmm. But you really have an opportunity. Sticking in that region, and then we'll do a, a quick pivot to Asia, and then I will let you go. Um, recently, obviously, there have been increased tensions between uh, the Turks and the Russians with the Turks shooting down a, a Russian plane that uh, apparently went into their airspace. Uh, Senator Rubio and many others uh, on the Republican side indicated that they would come to the aid of Turkey under uh, NATO obligations. Now, now, my question is, it's clear that Erdogan in Turkey is no fan of the West and himself is an Islamic supremacist who has aided, abetted, and enabled those who have aims anathema to ours. So why should we be coming or offering to come to their defense against the Russians today? 
This is one of the most complicated pickles into which the Obama administration has put us. And we should bear in mind uh, that the very first phone call President Obama made after his inauguration was not to uh, Downing Street. It was not to Tel Aviv. It was to Erdogan. Um, And this, this was his way of reaching out and showing where his priorities would be. And as we've discovered over the last seven years, this this has not worked out well. Uh, the Turks have been behaving extremely badly, and yes, they remain a NATO ally. But you know, Israel isn't a NATO ally. Japan isn't a NATO ally. I might be more inclined to go and save them from a foreign invasion. And it's not that the Russians have invaded Turkey. Uh, and as I'm sure you know, Article 5 does not, of the NATO Charter, does not automatically trigger military response. There are whole ranges of, of responses to incursion or attack there. So I think I would be extremely reluctant to go, with war, go to war with Russia over Turkey at this point, absent a very clear change in behavior by Turkey to suggest that they really valued the uh, alliance with the United States. Russia has really capitalized on our lack of moral clarity and basically has embedded themselves among those both Sunni and Shia throughout the Middle East. I mean, in some respects, they're an Iran proxy when you look at Syria and their material support for Iran's nuclear program for years. On the other hand, they're also making entrees into Egypt and elsewhere in the region. So Russia is doing what it's always done, which is whatever serves Russia's best, and they'll play both sides against the middle. Uh, How, in your view, do we best serve America's interests in terms of countering an ascendant Russia, which may have issues domestically and internally, but increasingly is ascendant globally? Well, and the reason, I mean, you're absolutely right. What the Russians do is follow their best interests, and with absolutely no interest in human rights or any of the ideals that underpin our society. Um, and I think, as we found in the past, we can have points where our, mutu- our interests coincide with the Russians. And we shouldn't ever mistake that for the Russians prioritizing our interests. But we can find places where they overlap. And we can effectively work together. They are what they are. Um, and they, they have not changed over hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years. So it's unlikely they're going to change, you know, next year, even if we have a new American president, but we can at least see them clearly and come up with some kind of scenario by which we can work together where we can and be very clear where the limits are for us on their behavior. And unfortunately, this administration has placed no limits on their behavior whatsoever, and they've acted accordingly. And that's why, actually, Vladimir Putin uh, ranks pretty highly on lists of people Americans admire. It's not because they particularly like him or they think the Russians are our friends, but they are, they are impressed by the fact that they're the leader who will do what he thinks is in the best interests of his country. Which is a sad commentary, conversely, on, on America's leadership today. Uh, How would you assess the long-term threat that China poses to America? What do you see as their ultimate goal? Well, I mean, they're pretty clear about it, that they would like superpower status. Uh, You know, they're they're running what uh, 
favorite author of mine calls the 100-year marathon. Um, this, is, this is not a short-term process. They are exercising cultural tools, economic tools, military tools in order to expand their sphere of influence and take, you know, to take a superpower role in the world. Now, I don't necessarily think that the PRC will be a wonderful actor uh, in a superpower role, so I might be inclined to, uh, to try to push back on that in different ways. We certainly have human rights. It's always been just extraordinary to me that the first time Hillary Clinton went to China in February of 09, she announced human rights are off the table. We're not even going to talk about it. It's incredible. Why would we cede the moral high ground to these people? It, it just, it, it makes no sense. I mean, they hate it. Good. That's a tool. I mean, it's, it's a feature, not a bug. And so you can push back that way. There are certainly a range of different economic tools. Senator Cruz talked about some of them last night. Uh, and I, I have no pretensions of being an, an, an economist, but if one is serious about these things, uh, when, when can pressure them, and clearly from the market forces that are at work recently, they're not 100 feet high. They're not invincible. Um, and it also gets back to the military investment. If they know America is strong, if they know we have carrier groups that can be deployed, if we have you know, long-range strike bombers that we can use, then they're much less likely to behave in a way that we would find unpleasant because they know there's going to be a repercussion. But if we refuse to make these investments the way this administration has, then they know there isn't going to be any retribution and they're more likely to, to act aggressively. Would a President Cruz harden our infrastructure against an EMP or other cataclysmic weapon like that? Absolutely. I mean, this is something he's been talking about for a couple of years now, um, that that we are, are really dancing on some thin ice here. When we start to think about how so many different elements, I mean, just of our basic way of life, from medical to food uh, to communications, are based on new technologies that are not sufficiently protected. And I know on the left, they like to think of this as sort of conspiracy theory and, oh, everything will be fine. But, I mean, I've seen the numbers. I'm sure you have, too, the projections of what could happen. I mean, and all you have to think about is Hurricane Sandy. I mean, that wasn't a bomb. That was a a storm. Um, And if you get something worse than that, whether it be artificial or natural, you know, we, we can be looking at, at, at just a severe economic blow, a loss of life, that we can prevent. And so it seems to me crazy we wouldn't take the steps necessary to preserve, you know, this really wonderful way that we live. Lastly, and, and you've been very generous with your time, what would you say to the American people is the one looming threat that we're either most underestimating or ignoring to America's national security interests? Uh, well, you're talking about all my favorite topics. So, yeah, this is this isn't a hardship for me. Um, it's, you know, it's funny. It's, it's what's in the conclusion of David Sling. It's apathy. And we, we have the most wonderful country. I mean, it is extraordinary what the United States has achieved. And the more you know about the history of democracy, the more you are impressed by, by our country. And the conclusion of the book is Tocqueville. And the notion that the hardest thing to do is to preserve liberty. 
and to do the very difficult difficult work that is necessary to prevent lapsing into tyranny. And tyranny can come from within and it can come from without. And so I think what's really beholden on the next president, whomever he or she may be, is to really summon our national will and to remind the American people of the extraordinary achievements of the last 130 years and and just, just what it means to preserve these for our country, for our children, but also for the planet. So that, you know, it's, it's not a single thing. You know, it's not a North Korean EMP. It's not a, you know, ISIS attack. All of these things would be bad, but they are symptoms. And I think the greatest thing we can do and our greatest challenge is, is to pre- preserve what we've achieved. Which, of course, is the, is the same threat that Lincoln referenced when he talked about, to paraphrase him, America not being able to be, be destroyed from without, but it would only fall from within. Indeed. We've been speaking with uh, Dr. Victoria Coates, author of the new book, David Sling, A History of Democracy in 10 Works of Art. Dr. Coates, thanks so much for speaking with us today. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you, Ben. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway.